Thank you, Lucille. And I'd like to thank the board for having me here and for allowing me to have my sister as my guest. Uh, it's a real treat for me to have her with me. Um, I might as well go ahead and tell you now. I usually have to tell people that um, I cry. <laughs> It does not bother me at all, and if it bothers you, that's your problem. Somebody made a comment one time that they wished they could cry and talk like I did, and somebody said, well, when you talk as much as Melinda does, you have to learn to cry and talk as at the same time. My ego always goes way up when somebody like Dave calls and asks me to speak at a conference, and then I get to feeling very inadequate and feeling a great responsibility for carrying the message of this program. And so to be able to share with you what I need to share with you this morning, I'd like to open with this prayer that puts me where I need to be. Thank you, Father, for this day, which is a priceless gift. Fill me with joy, confidence, wisdom, and energy so that I will live each moment to the fullest. Thank you, Father, for the love that will be expressed toward me today, the love of dear ones, the kindness of those whom I meet. Help me to show love and kindness toward others today. Control my thoughts and feelings and instruct my mind. Give direction to my loving and my working so that my serving will make sense. Father, I surrender to your infinite will. Thy will be done in me and in all those in my life. Absorb any personal willfulness in me into your infinite will, and let me be more aware of your divine plan unfolding in my life. Where I deliberately choose to do what is wrong, you will have to do something about my will. Bless me, loving Lord, all through this day, and bless the people in my life, so that they, whatever their particular needs or hopes or dreams this day, may feel your loving presence and keep serene, steady, poised, and happy, moment by moment, hour by hour. Lord, I acknowledge my total dependence on thee. Make me over into the person you want me to be, that I may yet find the destiny for which you gave me birth. My name is Melinda Jackson, and I am a member of the Al-Anon Family Groups, presently a member of the state of the Monday 530 Open Discussion Group in Statesboro, Georgia, and I also attend the Statesboro Al-Anon Family Group. Hi. <coughs> Bob, thank you for sharing with us last night and being here. Gloria, I'm looking forward to hearing you tonight. And I had a real treat this morning. This is the first time I've ever met Franklin. I told him I had heard about him ever since I'd been in the program, but this is the first time I've met him, so I'm very happy to be here with you. I told a friend of mine the other day that I was coming to God's country, and she said, yeah, you can take the girl out of the state, but you can't get the tar off her heels. <laughs> and that's true. I feel closer to God in the mountains of North Carolina than anywhere else in 
that I ever go in my life. And there's something about it when I get close enough to the mountains to be able to see the horizon and to see the mountains rising in the sky, I begin to marvel at God's majesty and at his tremendous love for me. And I become very grateful to be alive and to be a member of this program. I grew up in Shelby and I was educated there, if you can call it that. The only thing I ever wanted to do was be a nurse. And when I graduated from high school, I thought I wanted to be a medical missionary. Um, I had a little difficulty in school. I, I have a, a fascination for the bed in the mornings. I can stay up all night, and when it gets dark, I get wide awake, and when it gets daylight, I get sleepy. And uh, my uh, mother had, uh, my father died when I was a youngster, and my mother worked in the, one of the mills in Shelby, and she got up and, and left home to go to work at 5 o'clock in the morning. And she would wake me up, but I invariably went back to sleep. And uh, I didn't make it to school a lot of mornings. And uh, my junior year, at the end of my junior year in high school, they, I also had a lot of dental problems. And I thought one morning I had to go to the dentist, and I went, and I didn't have an appointment, and I couldn't see any use to go to school till lunchtime. And I went to the drugstore to get a sandwich and have my lunch, and the principal came in and caught me. And uh, he decided that I couldn't go to school for a few days <laughs> since I'd missed so many mornings. And I told my mother that I wasn't going back to high school. Under him, we had a personality conflict. Anyway, I finished high school up in at Crossnower, just a few miles back up the mountain somewhere from here. And uh, as I say, I thought I wanted to be a medical missionary, and so I went to a junior college to try to get in Duke. And while I was in at Pfeiffer, I decided I had to be a nurse, and I couldn't wait any longer, so I went into nursing school. And when I graduated from nursing school, I didn't have anything else to do. That was it. You know, I'd reached my goal. And uh, I decided I might want to teach, and I went back to college a year, and then I got a job teaching at Cabarrus Hospital in Concord. And I decided then that I that's what I needed to do, and I found out that uh, my credits would transfer to Emory, and I needed to get away from North Carolina for some personal reasons, and so I took off to Atlanta. Now, I'd never been any, in any city bigger than Charlotte, and, and this was a good many years ago, and uh, literally frightened me to death to be in Atlanta. I knew one person there. I got an apartment inside of the hospital where I was going to be working so I could walk. I was um, 
in my early 20s and still didn't know how to drive. My mama always told me that when I learned to drive, she would buy me a car, but I couldn't get in a car till I learned to drive. And in those days, they didn't have driver education in high school, so I didn't learn to drive. I decided that I couldn't settle down enough to go to school at Emory until I had acclimated myself to being in the big city. And by the time I thought I was comfortable enough to attend college, uh, attend Emory, I had begun hearing them talk about the new unit, and I found myself transferred to the Department of Psychiatry at Emory Hospital. And we launched into a 12-week continuing education program for those of us that were going to work there. And I hadn't been to Emory University yet. <laughs> But that's okay. Now, when I went to psychiatry, I learned that alcoholism was a symptom of an underlying emotional illness. And if you got rid of the emotional problem, then you got rid of the alcoholism. And I operated under that <coughs> fallacy for a good number of years. During this time, my sister came to Atlanta to live with me and... Uh, I got into some financial difficulty, and um, I had a friend who lived in a boarding house, and we decided that we'd move into the boarding house to save some money. Now, for me, that was just about as far down as you could go socially, was living in a boarding house. But I didn't have any choice. And... Uh, we moved in, and, and I don't even remember how many there were li lived there. Emily, what was it, about 30 or 35 of us? We all had dinner together every night or supper. And uh, there was a fellow there who attracted my attention. He must have been in a blackout from October until January. <laughs> because I sat across the table from him trying to get his attention. And he swore that the first time he saw me, I was going out the back door with a fifth of scotch on my way to a New Year's Eve party. And uh, what better way to catch an alcoholic? <laughs> well, once I had his attention, we got caught up into a relationship. And we ended up together. And uh, about three or four months later, I knew there was something bad wrong with that man's drinking. It was a lot different from mine. We'd been kicked out of the boarding house. He had lost several jobs just because he got drunk and didn't go to work. Or got mad and got drunk and didn't go back to work. I came in one afternoon and uh, he was stretched out in the middle of the living room floor, passed out. And as I walked by him, I kicked him just as hard as I could and broke my little toe. <laughs> but it got his attention. He got up. <laughs> and there ensued the first of many fights. It was very hard for me to admit when I came to Al-Anon that a fine young lady like me had come to do the things that I had come to do. 
It was hard for me to admit that every time this man had abused me, physically or verbally, that I had in one way or another initiated it. You know, he'd come in and I'd start. And he'd say, just sit down and shut up. And I wouldn't sit down and I wouldn't shut up. So he would sit me down and shut me up. And uh, I don't take lightly to things like that, and so I would retaliate. Um, we went home to visit my folks one time in Shelby. <laughs> I'm very impulsive. My uncle owns a store down in South Shelby, better known as Blanton's Variety Store. And if you ever go through Shelby and the store's open, it's a treat to go in there. I grew up in that store. My dad was one of the members of the community, and when I was, from the time I could walk until my dad died, I went to the store every night with him. And today, if I don't go to the store, when I go home, I hadn't been home. And... uh most often, I find something unusual that I can't live without when I go to the store. Um, Jim was drinking that particular weekend, and he didn't go around my mother and my grandmother very often when he was drinking. So he stayed at the motel to watch the baseball game, <coughs> and I was going to take him some supper. Um, we had hot dogs that Saturday evening, and I fixed him a couple of hot dogs. About the time I started up the car and started out the driveway, I think he called and wanted to know where I was. And Whoever, probably Emily, answered the phone said she's on her way back. Well, as I backed out the driveway, I said I had to go to the store. So I went to the store. And I don't ever get out of there any less than 15, 20, 30 minutes, and sometimes an hour. You meet the people in the community you hadn't seen a long time, and you visit. When I got to the motel, he wanted to know what I'd been doing. Off running around with my boyfriend, and I said, I hadn't got a boyfriend. And besides that, I took him hot dogs, and I knew hot dogs made him sick. <laughs> he didn't eat hot dogs. And... uh I don't like to be accused of things I haven't done, and when he accused me the second time of being out with my boyfriend, I kind of reached out and did this, you know. <laughs> and uh, next morning we got up, and he said, Honey, are you still mad at me? And I said, Just don't like to be accused of things I hadn't done. And he said, Well, I have to tell you, last night when I was so mad at you, I wanted to hit you in the mouth so bad I didn't know what to do. And all I could think of was, I can't hit her in the mouth. I'll break them new teeth and have to buy her some new. <laughs> and I'll have you know, those teeth lasted me 25 years. <laughs> Alcoholism is a fatal progressive illness, and it progressed in our home. We were together seven years, and in that seven years, we moved 19 times. 
Now, when we moved from one city to another, it was because of me. Because, you see, I quickly became managing and controlling and manipulating. I didn't uh, trust this man to take care of me. I didn't. He wasn't making any signs that he was capable of it. <laughs> and if I got an offer for a new job or an advancement in my career, then I took it. And uh, some six months after we started out, uh, we moved. And I took a job as a head nurse on a psychiatric unit. In a few months, he decided he needed some help with his drinking. And we were directed to AA and Al-Anon by a physician who had gotten sober in AA. Now, uh, I was already having a great deal of difficulty with my self-esteem. A fine young woman, career woman like me, ended up married to a drunk. And I just could not believe that I had come to that. And I went to Al-Anon in that city, and I heard those women talking about having lived with their husbands 10 and 15 and 20 and 25 years. And that didn't help my self-esteem any. God, I hadn't been living with him but nine months, and I was already crazy. But I soon learned that, you know, I had married a chronic alcoholic. He'd been to I don't know how many treatment centers before I got mixed up with him. Well, <clears throat> here I was going to Al-Anon and him trying to go to AA. And I was going to work and having beautiful results with the people I was working with, alcoholics. And... Uh, I'd go home and I could barely get him to speak to me, much less tell me how he felt about anything. How was I going to get rid of his emotional problems? And I decided I didn't want to be in that situation I was in and couldn't get a divorce. People would find out some things I didn't want them to know, and besides that, nothing like that had ever happened before in our family. I was so frustrated at watching somebody that I cared about and lived with and, and all this drink themselves to death and I couldn't do anything about it. And I could see results with somebody else. It didn't look like he was going to do anything. and He'd go off and I'd think maybe he wasn't going to get back and he'd show up, you know. I got so depressed because I couldn't control the situation and I felt guilty because of the way I was living and talking and acting and lying. And I got into that situation where I found my fascination with the bed again. And I was so depressed, I'd, it was a lot easier to cover up my head and stay in the bed. And, and then I started lying about why I couldn't go to work. I'd been lying about why he couldn't go to work a long time. And that added to my guilt. And I decided that I became so depressed that I could not function in my job. And I cry a lot now, but I cried a whole lot more then, and the crying I did then was a lot more painful. The crying I do today is tears of spiritual tears of gratitude and love and joy. And the crying I did in those days 
were tears of hate and anger and pain and guilt and resentment. If I managed to go to work, I could get there and uh, get report, cry a while, clear up my eyes and go back and make rounds. And cry a while and go back and do treatments. And and I was the head nurse on the unit, supposed to be teaching these other people how to take care of emotionally ill people. <laughs> and I was in a whole lot worse shape than patients were in. <laughs> in those days, well, they do now too, but it was a little news in. We wore street clothes to work. Somebody came into the unit one day and asked me for a nurse. And I said, I'm a nurse. And I saw a little group of patients over here decide to just get <laughs> And when the conversation was over, I went over and I said, so what's going on? And he said, we were just thinking about those, poor, those people that you were talking to and telling you were nursing. Look at her. Ain't she bad off? She thinks she's nurse. <laughs> that will tell you what kind of condition I was in as a result of allowing somebody else's alcoholism to affect me. I decided that I needed to get out of the situation. And the only way I could think of to do it was to commit suicide. And I began to take pills home from work tranquilizers and sleeping pills to get me enough. I'm extremely sensitive to tranquilizers and sedatives. Those of you who know anything about drugs, I passed out one time on three-quarters grain a second now for about six hours. <laughs> Had a little problem with blood pressure a few years ago. Dr. John gave me two grains of sodium luminal, phenobarb. And I slept from 9 o'clock that night till 4 o'clock next afternoon. <laughs> Dr. John used to tell me there was no way I'd be an alcoholic or an addict, that I was too weak-minded and didn't have enough willpower. <laughs> anyway, I finally went to the psychiatrist that I was working for and told him what was going on with me, and he got me some professional help from somebody else. And with that and the help of, I guess, some things I was hearing in Al-Anon, I managed to get out of that depression. But uh, once again, we moved. Every time we moved from one place to another, it was because of me. Every time we moved within the town where we were, I blamed it on Jim's alcoholism, his drinking. Because we'd either get in a fight and cuss and scream or not pay the rent or, you know, you know. <laughs> we left that town and moved, as I say, and for two years I didn't go to Al-Anon. Alcoholism is a progressive fatal illness, and it progressed in our home. And when we got, when I got so sick that... My life was totally unmanageable. God stepped in and caused me to have a spiritual experience that got me back where I needed to be. I uh, 
had a nursing school classmate that I had not heard from in about four years. And I began to have constant thoughts of this girl. It was kind of like a broken record going around in the back of my head all my waking minutes. I wonder where Shirley is. I wonder how Shirley is. I wonder where Shirley. And it was just on. And this went on about two weeks. And finally one day I said, well, I'm going to call and find out where Shirley is and how she is. And I contacted her mother and I found out that she was in. I got her address and her phone number and. About two weeks later, after I'd been home to Shelby to visit my family over Easter holidays, I walked into the hospital cafeteria one morning. This was in Concord. And met a young lady that said she was on her way to Fort Benning. Fort Benning's across the river from Phoenix City. Sherland's in Phoenix City. I've got to go see her. I have got to go see her. I went home. Packed some clothes, left Jim drunk, left home, called the hospital, told them I had to go out of town. Supervisor said, Melinda, is somebody sick? I said, yeah. I'll be back to work Monday night. Immediately felt guilty because here I'd lied again. But you and I know today that I didn't lie. There was somebody sick. There was a sick alcoholic laying drunk on the couch in our apartment. There was a sick spouse of a souse on her way to Phoenix City, Alabama, and she had no idea why, except that I had to go. And I had never left Jim drunk, except when I had to go to work because he might burn the place up or cut his foot off on a glass he broke or, you know, you know those things that you have to look after him for and keep him from doing. <laughs> I have yet to be able to describe in words how I felt when I got to Phoenix City and called Sherlyne and walked into her apartment, her home. And the first thing I saw was a big sheet cake with happy AA birthday written across the top of it. Sherlyn and her husband Al had been in AA and Al-Anon two years. The same length of time I had been away. I sat in their home that Saturday night and I talked and I cried. And I got her rid of the hurt and the resentment and the anger. And I made arrangements to go to that birthday party the next afternoon. And as we walked up the steps, Sherlyn said, Tilda, this is the lovingest, hugginess, kissingest bunch of people you'll ever meet in your life. And as she took me around that afternoon and introduced me to the members of the group and her friends in that area, not a single one of them failed to shake my hand, put an arm around my shoulder, kiss me on the cheek, say, we're glad you're here. It's nice to see you. And my friends, it had been a long, long time since I had felt that much love 
and acceptance and warmth and affection from anybody. And I found out that day what this program is all about. Loving and caring and sharing. And that's why I'm here with you today. I went back home and I got back in Dalinon and I haven't been away since. And that was 19 years ago this month. Alcoholism is a fatal progressive illness and it progressed in our home. And Jim was not able to find sobriety, lasting sobriety in AA. When I got back home from that trip, he was talking about being sick and and he was going to commit suicide. And for the first time in our lives together, I told him, if this is the way you feel, you have to find some help for yourself. I can't help you. And he made the decision to go to the VA hospital in Salisbury. And we got him ready to go. And he left home one morning, appeared to be sober. Don't think he'd had anything to drink in a few days. <clears throat> 45, he was going to catch the bus, go 20 miles from Concord to Salisbury. 45 minutes later and six phone calls later and every phone call telling me a different way he was going to get to the hospital, I knew he won't go into Salisbury. <laughs> and he ended up in Atlanta. Back in Atlanta. He decided, uh, well, I got a bad resentment toward him that summer. I had another friend that was living in Oregon, and I decided I, while he was in the VA hospital and being taken care of, I'd go out to see her on my vacation. So I arranged to take two weeks vacation, and the income tax money came, you know, check came back, and I wrote, signed his name to it. And <laughs> Got ready and made my plane reservations and got ready to go. Now, good wife that I am, my conscience will not let me go all the way to the West Coast without telling this poor sick man in the hospital in Atlanta that I am going. And so I write him a letter. And that, mm-hmm, I had the audacity to show up at home the day before I was supposed to catch my plane. And I hadn't been to the West Coast yet. <laughs> I thought I would never get over that resentment. But when I got to looking at it very closely, I decided that it was my fault anyway. I should have had sense enough to wait until I got to the airport to mail the letter. We went on a vacation anyway. We rented a car, and I turned in the plane ticket, and da-da-da. And we went back down into Georgia, and between, well, I had a, a cousin and an old boyfriend in Milledgeville that I wanted to go see. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I drove up to a motel, so he was drinking, and he wasn't in any condition to drive. So I drove up to a motel and went in to get us a room, and they told me they didn't have one. And immediately I knew the reason they didn't was because they had seen him passed out in the car. 
Well, I, now I later found out that there were a lot of things going on in Milledgeville that weekend, and, and that's a pretty small town. But here he was. I got another resentment, you see. He was going to knock me out of visiting with my cousin and knock me out of looking up my old boyfriend. <laughs> and uh, made me drive all, it caused me to have to drive all the way from Milledgeville to Macon, which is about how, how far, Skip? 50 miles, 60 miles, in the middle of the night before we could get a motel room. And it, it's country down there, folks. We got out there in the middle of the country, and I thought, you sorry, no good, so-and-so. Knocked me out of my trip seeing Liz, and now I can't stay in Milledgeville. And I slowed down because I knew that he was drunk enough that all I'd have to do is just reach out and, and he'd roll out. And I could drive off and leave him. And my second thought was, uh-uh. He'll beat you home, and you ain't willing to take them consequences. And so I drove on. It took me a long time to get up enough nerve to share that in a meeting. And I did it in a small discussion group one night. And when I said that, this woman said, <gasps> And I knew she'd thought of, about the same thing. <laughs> so she was in the mountains when she decided to do that. I was in the flat country. <laughs> if you stay in this program long enough and you learn to share your feelings and the things that have gone on with you, you will find that somebody else somewhere has had that experience. And it will lighten the load that you carry. Jim went back to the hospital again after that vacation. And then he decided he wasn't coming home anymore. He was going to get a divorce. I said, fine, you get it. Well, <clears throat> I decided he really wasn't coming home. He'd been gone. Well, he got put in jail in Raleigh and had to stay over there 90 days. And I thought he was going to come home when he got out of jail, and he went back to Atlanta. And I, okay, that's fine. So I take a trip and tell folks I'm going to be the worst. Visited some friends and got back home, and there he sat on the doorstep waiting for me to come home and unlock the door. From that trip, I got an offer of a job in Georgia, decided to take it. And we moved to Warm Springs, Georgia. And this was in March of 1969. The car that I drove down there <laughs> was a 59 Studebaker Lark. And it wouldn't, that I had paid $125 for while he had been gone. And it wouldn't go in anything but second gear. <laughs> And I was a little afraid to drive 30 miles to the nearest Al-Anon meeting by myself at night. So for a few months, I didn't go to any Al-Anon meetings, but I kept my literature around. And uh, we had some folks in that area that uh, had some alcohol problems. And occasionally one of them came in the hospital and I'd run down to their room with a big book and some AA literature 
and I'd keep an eye out for family, and I'd run down and take them back to my office and talk to them about Al-Anon and give them some literature. And in a few months, we were able to organize an Al-Anon group. Um, there were three of us. I lived in Warm Springs. We used my post office box. One of the other girls lived in Manchester, five miles away. We used her telephone number. And the other girl lived about 15 miles across the mountain in Pine Mountain Valley, and we met at her house because <laughs> she had four small children and couldn't afford a babysitter. <laughs> and that group's still going today and is extremely active in our part of the country. And it saved my life, and it saved my sanity. Jim had a period of not drinking, and things were beginning to improve in our lives, and we were making plans to go to the Miami Convention. I love conventions, and we had kind of hit a, an agreement that he'd, we'd take time off so I could go to conventions if I just would let him stay in the motel room and drink if he wanted to or fish if he wanted to or whatever. And I had finally learned to be able to do this. Christmas that year came, and sometime earlier he had confiscated some alcohol in his job. And he came home one morning tired, and he took a drink to help him sleep. And within a few weeks he was drinking around the clock again. And he asked me to call and tell him he couldn't come to work one day, and I said, no, you have to call yourself. And the next day, his boss came to the hospital and asked me if Jim was drunk or if he was sick, and I said, he's drunk, but he's sick. And I went home that, and he said, well, he knows he can't work anymore, and I said, don't tell him that you have talked to me if you talk to him. I don't know whether Jean talked to Jim that day or not. I went home for a while, and something happened that I had to go back to the hospital. When I got home the next morning, some things had gone on during the night that made me angry. And uh, in my anger, I could see that he was in pretty bad shape. Now, if I hadn't gotten angry, uh, I don't know whether I'd ever known what condition he was in or not because I had become totally indifferent to this man when he was drunk. I just walked by him. But my anger got my attention and I paid some attention to him that morning. And I called the girl who had relieved me at the hospital and I said, Linnell, when you come back, when you go home this afternoon, please bring some Vistaril or something by here for me to give Jim. He's in bad shape, and he's going to have to have some help. See, I was still trying to control and manage. And she said, Melinda, bring him to the hospital. The doctors are here. And I said, no, he'll be okay. But the truth is, friends, my husband was drunk. And he stunk, and he was dirty, and he needed a shave, 
and his pajamas were filthy. And my pride would not allow me to take my husband to my hospital and have my nurses and my doctors see my husband in that condition. My pride. About noon that day, he woke me up looking for the car keys. Now, I told you we were getting ready to go to the Miami Convention. I told you what kind of car I had driven to Warm Springs. Now, there wasn't any way that car would make it to Miami. And so we had bought a new one, and it was in my name. I asked him if they would take that Studebaker as a trade-in, and he said, I ain't got anywhere to park it. (laughs) (laughs) But I was not going to allow him to drive that car in his condition. And I I got up and took him where he wanted to go, where he needed to go. And you know where that was. And when he got a couple of drinks to stick... And got up enough strength and courage, he bathed and shaved and put on clean clothes. And when the nail came by that afternoon, she took one look at him and said, Jim, you need to be in the hospital. And he got up and went with her to the hospital. At 10.30 that night, when one of the nurses took me into an empty room, I knew my Jim was gone. Alcoholism is a fatal progressive disease. And though his death certificate reads acute congestive heart failure, it would be much more accurate if it read acute chronic alcoholism. Those who suffer from the disease of alcoholism as alcoholics have three choices. Abstinence, death, or insanity. And I believe those of us who live with and love alcoholics have three choices. Acceptance, death, or insanity. Acceptance of the fact that alcoholism is a progressive fatal disease. Acceptance of the fact that the men or women we love who are alcoholics are not any less of men and women because they are alcoholics, but because they suffer from an illness. And that that illness has nothing to do with the love and the caring and the feelings that they have. And acceptance of the fact that we are powerless over alcohol. That we did not cause it. We cannot cure it. And we cannot control it. And yet the most heartbreaking, frustrating thing I have ever been through in my life, bar none, is watching somebody I care about little by little, destroy themselves, drink by drink, pill by pill, shot by shot, and not be able to do anything about it. But this this program taught me to accept this. And to accept this man's death as God's answer for his alcoholism. He didn't have to drink anymore. He didn't have to hurt anymore. He didn't have to fight anymore. And for whatever reason, he could not find sobriety in AA. God answered his problem that way. And I had to be about the business of living. 
And I began to know that God was going to take care of me and that God loved me. And I began to know it almost immediately. They said, Melinda, lie down and rest. And I said, I can't. And it dawned on me nobody in the program knew what was happening. And once again, I called Charlene. And she said, it's okay. Go to bed. And you can get some sleep. You've done all you can do. And I'll be there tomorrow. And she was. And God met my need. Because somebody else in this program had shared my sorrow. And the next day when my family got there and we went to make the funeral arrangements. And I walked out of the mortician's office into the arms of an AA member. Who never left his office. But he did that morning, and he was there when I needed him. No human power. God meeting my needs. A few months later, I met Dr. John Mooney, and I knew he had the kind of treatment program I wanted to work in. A few years earlier, I had been around to some of the alcohol treatment programs, and God, it would have been a disaster if I'd started to work then in alcoholism treatment. But now I had sense enough to know that I wasn't ready to work in alcoholism treatment, and I told Dr. John that. But that if he ever needed a nurse who was a member of Al-Anon, I'd like to come to work for him. And when they moved into the hospital, Willingway Hospital, in, in August of 1971, they called me and asked me to come to work. And I went to Statesboro, Georgia to work at Willingway Hospital because I believed it was God's will for my life then. And I'm still there 15 years now because I believe it's God's will for my life now. I have learned something about love in this program. I have learned about giving love without expecting anything returned. And I can't always do that. But when I can, I feel kind of good about myself. And I've learned that God works through people. And I've learned and I know that God cares and loves about me. Now, I told you earlier that my dad died when I was a youngster. And I thought that I had lost the only person who had ever loved me in my life. And during my adolescent years, I can remember crying myself to sleep many nights, saying, Oh, God, send me somebody to love. Be careful what you pray for. Little did I know, when I went to my first Al-Anon meeting in 1963, that God was beginning to answer that prayer. 15, 20 years later. You see, he sent me all of you and people like you all over the world to love. And as I look back over my life, you know, I've always loved drunks. The favorite people in my life when I was a kid were the drunks. And yet, there was never any alcoholism or any alcohol that I can remember in my home. But it was the people I associated with. A few years ago, we 
were going through some old things, and I found a a postcard that one of the men in the community had written me when he was in the army. And I was just a little kid, you know. And he was one of my favorite people. And he died of alcoholism. I did and said a lot of things to the man that I lived with during his alcoholism that I'm sorry for. I cannot make direct amends. But I believe that in my efforts to help alcoholics and their families recover from this illness, even though I'm paid a salary for some of the work I do, that occasionally I might do something that takes care of the amends I have to make to this man. And speaking of amends, I think one of the reasons that I'm so grateful to have Emily with me this weekend is because I had amends to make to her. And I've never quite been able to do it. And I think having her with me this weekend is helping me do that. And I'm very grateful for that. Thank you. I may wish that your life were different, that you were wiser, that you used more judgment. I may wish that you were free from burden and care, that you were happier, that you felt more loved. I may wish that you would change the course of your life, that you would make a new start in the right direction. I may wish that you were not bound in some destructive habit. I may wish that you would seek higher ways, come under better influences, do something more constructive with your time and talents. I may wish all this because I love you, because I care. But I must lift my love and caring above the personal and look past what I see as needs and lacks in your life to God. I must be willing to place you lovingly in God's care, to trust God to guide you and bless you. This is my highest prayer for you. I love you, and I'm very grateful for your love.